is Pod Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pod Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. With three techno experts, Eric Newman, hi! Chris Grabowski, hello! And Tyler Dinner, yes! This week's episode, Under the Hood of JavaScript, Part 2. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another Polar Quest. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is no one because we do these shows by ourselves. There's a lot of show to get to, so let's not waste any time dilly-dallying as I jump mince my words up again. I really have messed this one up right from the start. To my left is my compatriot in code, Chris Grabowski. Hi, how are you? I am doing all right. How about you? I'm doing, uh, well, I've got a lot of stuff to get to. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to get to, so I've had four cups of coffee and didn't take my pre-show uh, anxiety medicine just so we can get through it all. And to your left, of course, is the drummer of the show, the heart of pull request. That's right, Tyler Dinner. Hi, Tyler, how are you? Hey, guys, I'm doing pretty good. Did you have a good, uh, you have a good week? I ha- yeah, can't complain. Um, I did some stuff. I got renter's insurance, so Ooh. I have a new apartment, and I feel safe, so and I, I use Geico's. No, because you know what? I just, it's too it's too soon. I can't trust an insurance company that's an app that's only been in existence a year. Oh, I do lemonade. <laughs> do it's they, great. Do they have, are, they, are they based on blockchain technology, Tyler? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't look at them. I went with an old one. I wanted the Gecko. I went with Geico. Their commercials are good. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and uh, uh, but they had a they had a smart uh, app like a, a you know smart assistant that talked me through the whole process took like five minutes and it was super easy. Five minutes saved you fifteen percent or more on your renters insurance, didn't it? <laughs> they did. They did throw in the you know our headline is to five minutes to save you fifteen percent or more on car insurance. Would you like to look at that? And I'm like, nah, dude, I don't even got a car. That's okay. I get those emails saying that my auto warranty is expiring and I don't have a car either. Though I could use renters insurance. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of stuff. I mean. There was Valentine's Day this week. Um, did you guys do anything for that? Uh, sat at home, drank whiskey. Okay. Yeah, I guess I guess you <laughs> spent the night with Pamela. No, not even that. Just drinking whiskey. Oh, okay. How about you, Tyler? Uh, I went out to dinner Tuesday. Tried to avoid the Wednesday crowd. That's a very good idea. I went out last week, uh, last weekend uh, before Valentine's Day. With uh, you know that I'm seeing Christian's mom. We talked about that last week. So uh, <laughs> the thing is, is that I bought her a nice bottle of wine, but she didn't like it uh, because I only drink wine out of the box. You know better. You need to get me the Costco wine. You buy it in bulk. <laughs> Yes, but there was a really long line. I don't care. You better get me the line that I want. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm going I'm to have a really nice time meeting your mom for the first time, Christian. It's gonna be <laughs> yeah, particularly when you learn how she can't drink. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a, you're that, that's, <laughs> well, How do I? That's nice to her to go twice in the week to Costco because I know she has to go again with to Christian. Return it. <laughs> oh. She okay. does. That's more so for my uh, brother who weighs uh, like 200 some odd pounds, but... Gotcha. Oh, so you put them on the big flat cart and it races around the place. <laughs> <laughs> no, they sell go-karts. Duh. Gotcha. Oh. Um, well, okay. <laughs> well, Does uh, she throw the go-karts? <laughs> well, I don't want to suck the air out of the room, but something really terrible happened on Valentine's Day, and it wasn't the fact that I got laid. No, it was the fact that there was a school shooting in South Florida. And, uh, and I don't really – I mean, it's just really terrible. And I just – I don't – I don't know what to say, and apparently nobody else knows what to say either. That's right, including those words of empathy from our studio audience, who we keep in a Tupperware container during the week, and we take them out on Sundays just for us. But it is a really solemn Sunday evening because of this 
yet another mass shooting in Florida. And I went to a high school in South Florida, and uh, I went to a high school in South Florida in a bad neighborhood that had barbed wire around the fence, and we had a police officer on campus with a gun. And I'm not going to say any remarks about it. it wouldn't have happened there, but... Uh, they had a very open campus. There was a very lax security. It was an upper middle class neighborhood in in, in uh, Parkland, uh, Florida, north of Carl Springs. And uh, a, a, a kid who was previously expelled from the school uh, walked in with a uh, a firearm, an AR-15, I believe. Pulled the fire alarm. He pulled the fire. He walked in with the firearm. Pulled the fire alarm, and then shot a bunch of people as they walked out into the hallway. Ironically, they had practiced for a fire drill earlier that day. Yeah. Can we go next? Okay. That's all I want to say. It just really ta- it was, you know, just have a small moment of silence for those people uh, who don't exist anymore. It's really sad. Pour one out. Okay. Anyway, that's about it. Uh, let's see. Back to some good news. Uh, I mean, I don't want to hate to say it like that. It's really, I mean, it's really terrible. And I just, anyway, I'll avoid a political rant. We don't have time for that. Some good news and back to technology. I, uh, where is it? I am getting Fios. That's right. I've been waiting for this moment all my life, much like Phil Collins, and uh, every place I've lived, they've given me some kind of, oh, it's about to come in your area, but I've never, I finally live in a place that's getting it, and um, they're coming by uh, two weeks from now, so I can finally tell all you people at Cablevision, you can go f- We lost Eric. Yeah. That was about time. <laughs> Did we really lose Eric at that time? I don't know if we really lost him or if he's just being Eric. Maybe he. And then the Cablevision having... people just really <laughs> have a nice stick up there. But, sorry, what? <laughs> you got muted for a long time, buddy. Yeah, oh, I shouldn't be talking about Cablevision. Right show. when you said I, you can tell Cablevision, no, you know, to go, don't, don't, and you cut out. Uh, you know what? And there was maybe, maybe we yeah. shouldn't tell those really. I can't tell. He's cutting out again. Damn it! He needs to work on his timing. I don't think that. Maybe I should, I should not compa- I shouldn't disparage Cablevision while I still have them. It's a bad idea. Anyway, <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, you guys aren't laughing with that. That's really sad. Uh, no, you're kind of you being can't... Andy Bernard right now. I don't know. Uh, anyway, Google Images, uh, they've removed the View Image button because of a lawsuit they had with Getty Images, the stock photo library, uh, who have sued them because they believe that Google Images, are they're scraping their site, which... Really know what to say other than probably are. So yet another reason to use Firefox. By the way, two other editions in Chrome this week. Chrome has removed autoplay ability for videos, which That's has kind of nice actually. It's very oh, nice. Wow. Ironically, the article that I linked in the show notes has an autoplay video about how they're not allowing that anymore. It's kind of funny. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> that's Chrome. What six- you, your your move, CNN, <laughs> CNET. Um, what is it? Oh, uh, any news site that autoplays videos now. Yeah, every site autoplays videos, which is supposed I'm to... I'm reading the article. I don't need a video explaining the article and reading it to me. And the video has a screenshot of the article itself, which is so funny. <laughs> uh, but they yeah. also have installed a native ad blocker, or as I will call it, a backroom deal manager. Anyone that... They... Backdoor Sally. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's going to block your ads unless you give Google a vig. So, I mean, they're not going to say that publicly, but that's how email works. So... Excellent use of vig. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? And, so and Chrome's mounting issues are really starting to impede my life as a web user and my life as a web developer. Uh, I actually have been forced, you know, we had this challenge. I've been forced to use Firefox this past week to do some work because of Chrome's Fakakta uh, SSL requirements for localhost. 
See, I just prefer Firefox because it's nice, lightweight, it's fast. I was telling you that two years ago, and you were telling me the opposite. Now the shoe's on the other Because you were developing was, on it, and it was causing problems. It was also true back then, though, that Chrome was the faster, lighter weight one, and now Firefox, Firefox just got better. But it's, but it's always rendered the best, which is the whole point of... If I, anyway, I'm very happy to be back in the Firefox boat, and I don't need that Firebug extension anymore because they've really souped up the native dev tools. I, I, I am proud of then what do you have to say, our wonderful studio audience? Yes! That's right. It's really nice to have them support the best web browser, which is, once and again, Firefox. Anyway. Uh, one last and next, next week, we force Eric to program on Linux every day like a real programmer. I thought you were going to tell me to use Opera Mini. I would actually <laughs> talk about making my job more difficult. Ooh, I got Linux set up this week. Uh, sorry, nice. what was that? I got Linux set up this week at work, actually. Nice. Oh, you did? Mazel tov. Because my thumbs are breaking because of the location of the command button on Mac. Oh, man. Hmm. Do you have an Apple attack for us, Tyler? Basically, you combine that with heavy cell phone use, and uh, your thumbs are going to fry after a while. Well, it's going to happen. I've been using apples for welcome to, 25 uh, years. Welcome to my life of uh, carpal tunnel and, uh, uh, what is it, RSI, repeated stress uh Injury. injury. Yeah, I think Tyler... Carpal tunnel it, in the 11th grade. Yeah, Christian story. I think that's what... <laughs> <laughs> Youngest person ever to get carpal tunnel. It's either been... It's either you're a brilliant software developer or an excessive masturbator. Anyway. <laughs> Why can't they be both? I mean, he's probably... He's probably <laughs> Says Christian. A brave soul. Uh, oh, you're using on. one to conceal the other, so... Now you guys are just fun. making fun of my disability. No. <laughs> it's not a handicap. We tell you that every week. <laughs> <laughs> if you never mind, that's on an After Dark show. Anyway, one last thing off the top of the show: a billionaire venture capitalist, Peter Thiel, who is all, has been uh, has severed his ties with Silicon Valley and is mo- taking the long trip down the 101 to Los Angeles. Is that the right highway, Tyler? To get to down to, to take it to, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, do you take the 101? Yes. Okay, good. Down the 101 to Los Angeles. That's right. Um, well, he, the thing is, is that he is a very prominent gay Republican, and uh, he does not like how vapid Silicon Valley has become with its groupthink and ideological homogeneity, which is one of the ironies behind cultures like that. Visi- you know, visibly, aesthetically, people are all different colors, races, shapes, and sizes. But ideologically, you have to think exactly the way that they think or else you're verboten. You might as well just be a Nazi and then, you know, someone like Peter Thiel would actually have been targeted by the Nazis, uh, which puts him in quite an interesting position. So he's getting out of the game. The gay game? No. (laughs) No, No, it's it's a LA, not away from LA. It's ironic too because of San Francisco, but that's another story. Uh, uh, several ooh, ooh, several tech workers and entrepreneurs, I'm just steamrolling over that, have also said that they have left or plan to leave the San Francisco Bay Area because they feel the people there are resistant to different social values and political ideologies, like I said. Group thinking. They don't homog- take kindly. Exactly. <laughs> Group thinking homogeneity. Uh, another type of homo, are making it worse, a worse place to live and work, these workers <laughs> said. Quote, I think the politics of San Francisco have got a little bit crazy, says Tom McHenry, an angel investor who moved a decade ago to Los Angeles from the Bay Area. Quote, the Trump election was super polarizing and it definitely illustrated, uh, and Peter Thiel said this, how out of touch Silicon Valley was, uh, said Mr. McKerney, who describes himself as fiscally conservative but socially liberal. 
Tim Ferriss, the tech investor and best-selling author of the four-hour work week, moved to Austin, Texas, or now it's known as East California. Um, <laughs> so that's that's about it. Um, yeah. I, I bet Peter Thiel has never even heard of Farm to Table. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, he doesn't have to deal with that crap anymore. Ooh. And neither do we, because we live in the greatest city in the world. That's right, it's... Time for our New York Minute, where we take a look at your five boroughs. There's been a lot of stuff going on in the city this week, as I try to find the tab with the stuff open. Start spreading the news. The Chelsea bomber, uh, a man who set up small bombs on a New York City street and at a charity race in New Jersey, was sentenced Tuesday to multiple terms of life in prison by a judge who repeatedly called it a miracle that nobody New was killed. York, New York. Multiple terms of He's life in prison. So if he does get reincarnated, he will still be in jail. Well, I'm a turtle now. Jail. <laughs> One thing that we missed last week, speaking of school shootings, there was a school shooting in the Bronx, and I don't know how we didn't hear about it. I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but just putting that out there, that how are there, there are reportedly 18 school shootings this year. We've only heard of a couple of them. Why is that? I, I hate to say it, but I feel like it's just that these things happen so often now that it's been desensitized. But I, I would, I would unfortunately agree with you. But the problem is, is that people cut away from tragedies like this to read about what Donald is tweeting on the toilet. Yeah, that's that's the bigger tragedy. Is that those tweets and they get so much higher ratings than teen in custody after shot fired inside of Bronx High School. So. I don't know what to if say. I can it's just, it's, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, there's an artist called Five Points, number five, P-O-I-N-P-Z. Uh, his artwork, his graffiti, street graffiti, was erased. And a judge on Monday awarded a total of $6.75 million to the artist, sorry, a group of artists. Um, and they were erased by the owner of the former Five Points building in Queens. The award will be dished out to the 21 artists for various amounts. With one artist, Jonathan Cohen, expected to receive more than a million dollars. How's that for an arts grant? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For almost 20 years, Wilkoff had allowed the artists to use the building as their mural, but in 2013, he decided to redevelop the property because of gentrification. So. Good. And, uh... One last thing is that uh, de Blasio, or as we like to call him in the city, Big Bird, uh, has proposed an end to Rikers Island, and he wants uh, jail sites on the mainland of the city rather than on an isolated island to host these inmates instead. How do you guys feel about that? Uh, you know, he's probably going to just have all these inmates moving to hotels, you know. Why don't they just stay it? with him? And, and uh, like how he handled the homeless people. Put them all in the hotels, and there's a bunch of crime, and then you don't know what to do because yep. there's racism somehow. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in order for the new jail facilities to be, what is it? The proposal, which uh, was prevented, presented by the mayor's office and city council, will go under a public review process that will include hearings and recommendations by local community boards, borough presidents, and the city planning commission. In order for the new jail facilities to be built, the city council will need to approve them. Locations include the Manhattan Detention Center at 125 White Street. And the Brooklyn Detention Center, Detention Center at 275 Atlantic Avenue, Queens at 126-0182nd Avenue, and the NYPD Topound in the Bronx. And Eric's apartment building. In my apartment building. Don't... Uh, no. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I live in the womb of gentrified Brooklyn. Don't mess with that. No, you don't. You, you live just a little too far north. Well, no, I don't. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I learned something really... I don't know where the music stopped. I learned something really interesting about the uh, electricity grid between Brooklyn... Uh, did you know that all the, all the electric in Brooklyn is underground, but all the electricity in Queens is on poles, and... Uh, if you look across Wyckoff Avenue, which is the border right here between Brooklyn and Queens, you can see that there's poles on one side of the street and not on the other. Start spreading yeah. the news. I don't know. It's very, it's very interesting. Uh, by the way, one last thing. There is Vagina Mohawks at the New York Fashion Week. That was also this week, but we'll let you read about that on your own. Or, or Pink Christian for more details. Right. What? Because, yes, because Why you me? have a mohawk on your vagina. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> ah, fine. It's Girl, fine. you can pull it off. Well, Thank I mean, you. if he pulled I, it off, I, he wouldn't I, have a mohawk. I, I dye it. You know, I've been dyeing it for years. I figured just, you know, cut, cut, cut it down to like a minimal amount now, and it should be good. Gotcha. We all, uh, we all yeah, knew you could the, do it. The, the Fashion Week show was to show inclusiveness, and you can show inclusiveness by turning your pubic hair into a mohawk. I didn't come up with this stuff. I couldn't have come up with that stuff. That's not, it's not something that would come out of my head. Uh, but it is something on Christian's body. Anyway, moving on to something, other things that come out of your body. It's time for our GitHub Issues of the Week. Our first GitHub Issue of the Week comes to us from HashiCorp's Nomad. Possible memory leak in Nomad 0.7.1. Take it away, Christian. Sure. So Nomad is HashiCorp's cluster scheduler. So that's software that says, oh, run this program on this server, run this program on that server, and run this program on this other server. And uh, so it's based off of the Borg, Omega, and Quincy scheduler uh, research papers. So some uh, real research went into... It's based off uh, of the Borg? The design. Yeah. So the Borg was the original cluster scheduler at Google. And Not they had Omega. Of, it's, 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 it's named Google after that. Clones. It's Star named Trek. after that. It, d- d- don't let your brain explode. Okay. It was named after that. Okay. And so then Omega came after. Never really got into production because it was trying to reach a moving target. And Quincy was something totally separate that a bunch of uh, research scientists uh, created. And so Quincy, uh, sorry, Nomad takes designs uh, from all of these and kind of uses them to schedule these processes. And so the issue is there's a memory leak somewhere. And so Nomad's written in Go, which Go has this great profiler to find where memory leaks are. Uh, so the person who re- reported the issue just needs to profile it, and you can usually identify, hey, this particular function is uh, allocating memory but never freeing it. Gotcha. And if you, uh, if Nomad, the cluster schedule has a has a fatal error, is that a cluster fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Also, cluster fudge. Yeah, let, let us uh, remind, mind you, this is not a, a an after dark. I said fa. I did not finish that word. It's a cluster fluff, like that. Ben I and said Jerry's fudge, thing. as in the delicious candy. Well, there's mm, the, there's that Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Fudge. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what's the uh, work? Uh, what's the was there a workaround for this memory leak or a solution? They need to profile it. Oh, they have to profile it. Yeah. And then that's what? profiling, and that's See wrong. What's... Then I'll show. Oh, this particular function is allocating memory, not freeing it. So you can look at that function. You can see, oh, this uh, we're accidentally setting this uh, uh, like struct to a global or something. Gotcha. Okay. Anything else? Nah. All right. Well, let's move on to our next GitHub issue of the week. Our next GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Rust. 
Using standard I.O. read-write cursor in a no-STD environment. Wow, I also have a no-STD environment. That's called my pants. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Lies. (laughs) Christian, you set me up for these. Yeah, Uh, I did. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so what is what is this? Standard I.O. is obviously a standard I.O. library part of C. This is part of oh, yeah, Rust. That's not Rust. Rust. Sorry. Uh, what is, what, where, why would you use Rust? So Rust is a low-level language like C, or more closely to C++, uh, where it doesn't have a um, garbage collector, but it has these constructs to make uh, like memory management easier. Why not a garbage and collector? Because that adds uh, latency to your programs, where you have to actually get... Even even a concurrent garbage collector has to pause it sometime to collect uh, the garbage. But then this just kind of just poops all over your memory. It doesn't clean it no, up. No, this doesn't. What this does is it provides these constructs. Like, one, it's functional programming, so uh, it's a lot less often do you actually have to allocate stuff to the heap. Okay. And two, two if you do, there's certain uh, constructs that Rust provides that will allow you to uh, free these when they are out of scope uh, with ease. And uh, instead of... Instead of just letting them like never be freed by accident and creating a memory leak, uh, the Rust compiler will actually, at compile time, realize you uh, messed up and just yell at you a lot and make you feel bad because Rust likes to make you feel bad. Like how? How does it make you feel bad? Uh, just thousand errors per uh, like compilation. It, it is, has a rather large learning curve. Error number forty-two. I remember my first program. Is that <laughs> like? Is that one of those? <laughs> Pretty much. Go back to school. Um. All right, so what's a no-STD environment? You're not supposed to use standard libraries? Yeah, basically, if you want to just write, uh, like, directly to assembly that doesn't need the Rust uh, uh, library compiled in or something, you're trying to make something really small. Mm-hmm. There's certain standard lib things that you can use because they're just uh, pure Rust and they don't rely on anything outside of it. But That's... the standard I.O. library does require the standard I.O. error, as well as some allocation tools. Okay. And... I mean, this this it, GitHub issue seems like it's kind of going against the grain using standard I/O libs within a no standard and envi- non standard. Well, no, you, you need some of these, and some of them it's just like, oh, I, I want this one standard lib uh, 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 object or something. I, right. You, I, as long as as long as they don't depend on anything else in the standard lib, you can pull it in there. The idea is making something really small for something like an embedded system. Hmm. So, what's the solution? Well, you have to actually make uh, code changes. You can probably abstract out the uh, I- I.O. error, and I'm not really too sure about the collection tooling, but you might be able to abstract those out as well. But abstracting those out is just going to create more space. Not necessarily. The... You can use like a, um, an interface type. Well, why is this environment no STD? Non, I don't even know how to say that. Non-standard, no standard. You, you want to drop the standard lib out of your binary so it's smaller. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily prohibit it from running if you can add a couple of libraries that are, like you said, that aren't really dependent on much. Yeah, say you've got, like, um, uh, the, you're building an IoT device of some sort. Okay. And you need to write some code. You can't put in, like, more than, like, uh, 16 uh, megabytes tops, and that's, like, the entire device. Gotcha. What's that? What's what? You have a time machine booting up? Oh, no. Uh, somebody in a, uh, uh, you, you know, you're, you're in the neighborhood when you, uh, oh, every once in a while. somebody with like a, about. A, yep. a, a really souped up, uh, not that great of an actual car. Oh, that's a somebody car, it's not the bikers. No, this is somebody compensating for something. Oh, it's a rice rocket? Yeah. Have a, yeah. All right, yeah. anyway. Uh, 
So we talked about the solution, I guess, for this, right? Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our next GitHub issue of the week. It comes to us from a place of wine. Napa JS. It's from Microsoft. With at CID and extends auto transportable getting CID errors. What is the at symbol in this case? So oh, it's a decorator. At, yes. There it is. Yes. Okay. What does CID do? CID is like a coroutine ID, I believe. Okay. So uh, one thing with NapaJS, NapaJS is its own runtime. It's a threaded runtime. So it works a little differently than, like, say, Node, where you're doing async. I was going to ask, is this like Microsoft's answer to Node? Not really. This is like something totally separate that Microsoft acquired, I believe, that was like somebody was already working on this. What would and, you do with Napa? Uh, like, if you need, like, more computationally heavy stuff and you want to write it in JavaScript for whatever god-awful reason. Right. Exactly. Use this. If you were yeah. writing something very computationally heavy, you wouldn't be using JavaScript. Most likely. Unless you were told to by your boss at Microsoft. Okay, anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, all right. So what's the deal here? Uh, so when they try to get these coroutine IDs and they're trying to also uh, have... Constructor ID, in, it looks like. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Unrecognized constructor ID, CID in build main.search URL encoder. Please ensure at CID is impl- applied on the class or transport.register is called on the class. So it looks like it's just not uh, the uh, CID decorator is just not being applied when it's in, uh, inheriting from this auto-transportable. Ah. And what's the solution? Uh, I don't know. I was wondering if you had any ideas, but well, I don't if really not... Use, uh, I mean, JavaScript, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's like ES6, ES7 stuff, so I didn't know if you knew. But, I don't uh, really use decorators. But uh, it could be that the auto-transportable is just overriding the at CID, and it's kind of like a uh, ordering issue or something. Huh. Interesting. I should, <laughs> should look at decorators. That's actually something I haven't really... I know, they, I know they exist in Java. They do exist in ES6, but I've never really used them. Huh. I use them a lot in Python. Okay. Well, what's an example? Like, why would you, where would you use a so, decorator? Uh, one that uh, we use pretty often is to actually uh, uh, use a de- uh, decorator, say, in our uh, REST API to provide logs on our database, where it just says, like, lock this. Cl- uh, so our current database is not, uh, doesn't support ACID transactions. So in order to have consistent data, we have to lock around a, c- a collection. So we have another collection that represents locks where it goes and finds this. So this is just something to say, like, when this function gets called, also lock the database. So it's a way of, like, wrapping a function in another function. Well, why don't you just wrap the function in the other function? Because you could. It's just, like, the certain language. It's a, sometimes it's a preferred style. It's a lot more readable. And in the case of Python, it's just easier to write because Python's a little crankier with closures. Okay. But, I mean, what about for something like JavaScript? Like, I don't get why... You would you have a decorator could. instead of just like a func- another function call. Because it's just nicer to read. Not if you don't know what it does. Whatever. Okay. Um, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this one. Hmm. Okay. Well, why don't we just move on to our last GitHub issue of the week? Our last GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Caffeinated Mike, the Michael well, Scott the, Reddit bot. Yes, so the creator is Caffeinated Mike, and the Michael Scott Reddit bot is the project. Right. Come <laughs> up with other Michael Scott isms. Come up with other Michael Scott isms that warrant responses. Come up with the replies should be find gifs for said replies. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, you, what's a Michael Scottism? That's what she said. The, that's that's a good one. The the greatest. Ah, uh, never mind. I don't. We don't have time for this. I don't know that many office references off the top of my head. Um, I wanted to get all, all the places you'll go, but all they had was Cat in the Hat. Ah, oh, there you go. There was uh, the greatest shots you'll miss are the ones you'll never take. Wayne Gretzky, quoted by Michael Scott. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's been really anything fun. with prison, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> prison, Mike. Yeah. Uh, there was that. There was the second episode of The Office where he did jumped into that Chris Rock bit, and uh, <laughs> oh, um, and the Yankee Swap, and the Yankee Swap. Favorite. That's not yeah. Uh, anyway, um, that's a that's a good show. Maybe in ten years, ten more years, it'll come back on the air like Roseanne. Anyway, um, after our GitHub issues, it's time for Tyler's plus one. Our public request plus ones are where we send out well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people and other organizations. Who's our first plus one this week, Tyler? Our first plus one goes to the United States and Robert Mueller. You think? Yeah, sorry. Uh, like the pop. The, uh, the, well, yeah, finally had some some charges and some accusations about Russia hacking in the election. Uh, it's just. We're at a place where we don't know if it's actually going to matter or if anything is going to be done about it. Is it too little too late? So, plus one, theoretically. Okay. Well, why don't you give <laughs> the plus one to Russia for being able to manipulate our election, even though all the real data says otherwise? Is it their fault when we allowed it to happen with, like, Facebook and other things? Well, we'll get to that later. Uh, I don't want to spend too much it? time on can Russia. Can we even give them credit for it? I don't want to spend too much time on Russia right now. But yes, we can give Mueller a plus one for <laughs> finding 13 Russians uh, that have been charged with tampering in the U.S. Ele- uh, US election. Uh, what's next? <laughs> next is uh, is uh, the students at the Florida school where a tragedy struck this week. Oh, Jesus um, Christ, Tyler. You've got, like, two really tough... You're not letting me get there. You were actually negative about it, and you said sadly nothing's happening. That's but me, in I fact, mean, because oh, I go. But but in in this case, they've been relentless on social media. They've been making points. They've been calling out Congress and and people in the government that are allowing these loopholes to happen, and they're not letting this this tragedy just fall by the wayside like the other 17 that we've had this year that you didn't even realize that we had. I don't. And, uh, I don't. I, uh, this is getting too political. I'm not going to argue with you because we don't have enough time. I want to talk. Uh, just I, I, there's no nobody proposes any solutions outside of the stuff that they always say every time one of these happens. They also say anyway. Never, yeah, exactly. You got it out of me. Okay. And your last and your last plus one goes to uh, number three is tied to number one. A random Reddit user found really really strong ties between the subreddit the Donald and the fake Twitter accounts that were uh, manipulating a lot of social media. Really? Um, so, yeah, the, so R so, the Donald could actually be uh, Russia propaganda Reddit? Uh, so basically the Donald was the most susceptible place on the internet to Russian propaganda. That Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, But uh, are you saying that that's, that came from Russia? That some Russian posing so as yeah, an American So yeah, the propaganda was coming from Russia via Twitter, and then they found really strong ties to all that information being just propagated uh, on the Donald. And largely by just one account that was taking stuff that happened to, you know, also be posted under largely the Texas GOP Twitter account that was really causing a lot of impact Tennessee. from uh, 
directly from Russia. All right, Tennessee. Um, and that, that, all that, all that stuff was going right to Reddit and to the Donalds, and they were just eating it up. Wow. Yeah. So one random Reddit user just like, hey, let me check out this account on the Donald, and oh my god. Well. So, You've picked, really some really, lot, just, you've picked some really tenuous plus ones this week, Tyler. Did you have some awesome ones in technology you wanted to mention? No, it's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> Thanks. All That's right. plus ones for the week. And this has been our plus one. <laughs> Tyler. It's great to hear you try to argue over, over that the music. music. The th- well, that's why I didn't want to have the arguments during your segment because we can't. I can't. It's not. The, music, the music takes out ma- all keeps... your angry tones in your voice. It's great, and it keeps the argument brief because I know that we got times a ticking. We got to move, um, and, and like and like times a ticking. We got to move. Where's my thing? It's time for our Apple Attack, where we take a nice little poop on Apple this week. Apple to fix Telugu character bug causing devices to crash in a minor iOS update. That's right. iOS messages app. Or actually, sorry, it's any time a native Apple text control is rendered. If it has a certain character in a certain language, and this is the Tugulu, I don't know, Telugu, I don't know how to pronounce that language uh, from India, it will actually cause the whole thing to crash. Thanks, Apple. This is yet another... another text bug that has plagued iOS 11. Uh, They just need to fix it. Uh, Apple has really been uh, harping on their HomePod, that's their new digital assistant uh, that interfaces with Siri, that's to compete against Amazon's Alexa and uh, Google's uh, whatever that is. Spyware um, by Apple. What was that? (laughs) Spyware by Apple. Exactly, spyware by Apple rather than by Google or by Amazon. So take your, choose your poison. Um... HomePod has two big issues. One of them is that it just doesn't work for some people. Uh, This this device with no buttons uh, has a setup failed error, negative 6722. Apple says make sure that your stuff is on the latest version of iOS, but of course it is. And they say let the Home app load for 30 minutes or longer until an option to erase and reset the app comes up, even though it's probably your first time using it. Not to mention the HomePod also is notorious for leaving white rings on some furniture. Because, well, I guess everything is white in Apple's design lab, so your furniture should be white too. And that's been our Apple Attack! Getting their technology all over everyone. (laughs) Exactly. White rings. Uh, Anyway. Not on the good furniture. (laughs) <laughs> well, the, the, I, I really believe everything in their in their nine hundred million dollar testing lab is all white. I didn't think about the fact that it might actually leave a white ring on something because I couldn't see it because it was white. I'm putting that out there. <laughs> I'm gonna stop with any jokes. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, Christian leaves. The, never mind. Uh, <laughs> for the sake of the explicit tag, let's move on. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. Because our next story is about the FCC. Oh, yeah, I know all about the FCC. And I've been waiting weeks to play that sound bit. Um, It looks (laughs) like... Well, why don't we just... Oh, that wasn't it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was uh, when I went duck hunting uh, with a judge. 
Is that a joke? Is no, there that's, a the, that's that uh, Eric Idle song, F you very much, the FCC. Is it really about duck hunting with the judge? Yeah, that's where it starts off. He's like, this is a little number that I, where I went duck hunting with a judge. Anyway, we're getting off track. Sold. Uh, I, really, cause I really wanted to play this one. They will clean up all your talking in a manner such as this. They will make you Okay. The already unpopular agency boss, Ajit Pai, has been on a tear in recent months, gutting decades old media consolidation rules designed to protect consumers and the nation's media markets from any one broadcaster becoming too powerful. Pai's efforts arrive not coincidentally at the same time the Sinclair Broadcasting Group is attempting to acquire Tribune Media as part of a $3.9 billion mega merger. These two are already media conglomerates. Most newspapers in the country are owned by one of these two companies and now they're going to combine even more. Uh, it's a FCC. Yes. Uh, given criticism of Sinclair for its often distorted and inaccurate news reporting, uh, not to be confused with CNN, consumer advocates say that the deal would have profoundly a negative impact on the quality and diversity of media discourse, as well as all the already dwindling competition in the space. Without a, a Pi's assistance on this front, the Sinclair merger would have been impossible. So the, uh, as per a New York Times report, the FCC's inspector general has launched an investigation into whether Pi has acted inappropriately as he had rushed to dismantle this rule. Let's see that guy's tax returns. Yeah, exactly. Well, for 2015. Your hmm. uh, gift section looks strange. Exactly. Uh, and, and by the way, this inquiry joins a rotating crop of other investigations into Pi's behavior during his first controversial year as agency head. A GAO, that's General Accounting Office inquiry, is also looking into him as to why his FCC has appeared to make a made-up a DDoS attack in order to try and downplay massive opposition to the agency's repeal of net neutrality. I'm glad he's being investigated because he's really a piece of poop. I I don't think there's anybody who's more uh, poopy. Jeff Sessions. No, no, I I, I put this guy above him in the uh, poop category. Yeah. I don't know. It's a turn off. We've got a turn off. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, that's really that's really it uh, for the FCC. I just I he's a douchebag. That's all I can say. Yeah, we're doing great on that. Uh, not getting an explicit tag tonight. <laughs> you know, we actually haven't said anything that's not allowed on the radio. Really? Yeah. You can say, say douchebag. Yep. Totally say douchebag. Bag a douche. Yep. You, yep. A douche. A bag. Yeah. Okay. Hey. I didn't say you could say it five times a minute. You didn't say there was a limit. Take it easy. I just said you could say it every once in a while, and it's fine. It's not going to. As we're talking about Italian. the FCC, the organization that does apply these broadcasting rules, if we were a real radio show, um, yeah. Now, if if it's too explicit for Apple, that's another story. But they can go so say do something that we can't talk about on the show anyway. Um, see, that would be explicit. So, oh, you mean the trouser-friendly kiss? Leaving a white ring somewhere. Let's move on to our cryptocurrency connection. While we're on limited time, I know. (laughs) Is that you singing? That was Tyler. (laughs) Sounded like Eric Carmen. Uh, (laughs) I can't do my Carmen tonight. Oh, that's. That's fine. Um, let's see. Cryptocurrency craze hinders search for artificial life. The people from SETI, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, they spend a lot of time searching the heavens for nothing. 
hoping that some of this nothing will come back and talk to us. <laughs> but their search has been stymied by the fact that all of the highest-end graphics cards, as in what they use to do their processing, have been taken by people who are trying to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Or a Christian trying to play yet another game. Hey, I'm, I am very content with my two RX 480s. Well, SETI would like to have them. So are they? Are no, they mine, are, mine aren't even the ones that are good for that. You need like Quadros or Teslas or uh, Fire Pros. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny because mining bits of nothing is taking is is taking power away from searching the heavens for basically the same thing. Nothing. Um, I don't yeah. know. You remember that giant uh, object just floating by Pluto the other time, and then uh, uh, no. Anyway, I mean, let's, uh, we don't there, have time. There's a Uranus joke. Okay, it's fine. Uh, let's see, one other thing. <laughs> a piece of DNA contained the key to one Bitcoin, and this guy cracked the code. There was a three-year-old Bitcoin mystery, and that came to, the, uh, got, that came to an end last week after Sander Wyatt's Williams, W-U-Y-T-S, a 26-year-old Belgian PhD student at the University of Antwerp, cracked a code that revealed the key to one Bitcoin inside a strand of synthetic DNA. It's pretty cool. So what, some biology student, like, encrypted all his... <laughs> he sequenced his, uh, his DNA and used that sequence to as, as the key for his Bitcoin wallet. He just used the white ring that was left over from his Apple HomePod. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The key, or chemicals arranged to represent a string of text, was placed in the DNA as part of the DNA storage Bitcoin challenge. The challenge began in 2015 after Nick Goldman, a researcher at the European Bioinformatics Institute, gave a presentation on using DNA to store information at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, which was last week. During his presentation, Goldman distributed tubes of DNA in which he had encoded the key to a digital wallet containing one Bitcoin. The first person to sequence the DNA and decode the files would be able to claim the Bitcoin, was which was worth $200 at the time it started. But now that same Bitcoin is worth somewhere between eight and $12,000. National Treasure 5. <laughs> There's a treasure of Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency. Just shot in one room. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Sell, sell, sell. dig up a piece of Benjamin Franklin's DNA to unlock it. Hey, that's actually, you know what? That's actually, that's not bad. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Time travelers. It's getting crazy. <laughs> we need your DNA for cryptocurrency. Should I explain and that? we're going to start using century? the Constitution. <laughs> And then we're going to tear it up because of what people want to do for some other things. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's uh, – I, I don't that's I, I don't really know. Could work for Bill and Ted 3. That's They get the Bitcoin, and then that's how they get the rocket that powers them to have Wild Stallions play on Mars, like the newspaper headline said at the end of the second movie. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Wild Stallions? That was from Bill and Ted, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I know. So now it's a Bill and Ted movie. Oh, now it's a Bill and Ted movie. <laughs> Bill yeah. and Ted's National Excellent. Treasure. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where they have Bill a crossover with Excellent. Wayne's World. Uh, uh, and Beaver. That would be an interesting group of people. Like like Bill and Ted, <laughs> Wayne's World, and Wayne, Wayne and Garth, and Beavis and Butthead. They're all basically <laughs> the same characters. <laughs> they, I don't think they you They are put... they aren't. Like, they, they've got unique personalities. But... I mean, they all kind of stem from the same kind of culture culture the yeah. crappy early 90s grunge stuff anyway uh i feel like nicholas cage and keanu reeves are too similar to having the same movie what 
<laughs> no, come on. Keanu actually knows yeah. what's going on around him. He just doesn't know if he's in a movie or not. Well, that's, you know, I think I think he really had to... He definitely seemed smarter uh, during the 90s, like between F, between Bill and Ted and The Matrix. He actually, like, seemed much smarter by The Matrix than on Bill and Ted's. But you can really sound as smart as you want when you're reading someone else's words. Just like me on the show. Anyway, uh, moving on to something that I might know actually something about. It's... Theresa May murders the internet! That's right. And it's not actually her this week. It's on our side of the pond, but she still gets credit for the war on cryptography. Check this out. Four cryptography experts have backed a U.S. senator's campaign to force the FBI to explain how exactly a Fed's-only backdoor can be added to strong and secure encryption. This comes from an article that I, I, I usually don't read headlines, but the article is called Crypto Gurus, Cullen. Which idiots told the FBI that Fed's only backdoors encryption and encryption were possible? Brilliant boffins backed the bullshit bureau bollocking. Because you know what? Because the key is going to be the president's DNA. Oh. <laughs> well... We all know there's no short supply of that in the White House. Well, the problem there's is, tons is that, of that the everywhere problem, no, the in terrible problem places. Is that his DNA has mutated because of all of the fast food that he eats. So it's kind of a, it presents an issue. Um, no, but uh, it says the FBI is asking engineers to design a highly complex yet secure system. The crypto boffins noted. I wish we called geeks boffins in this country. That sounds so cool. Uh, Many boffins died bringing us this info. Yes. Just because a non-technical person believes that such a system can be developed does not make it so. Make it so. Number one. In fact... And as your letter notes, many experts have warned that security would be weakened by this exceptional access mechanism. So the FBI has asked every scientist and cryptographer and computer scientist in the country if they could do this. They've all said no. Then they ask Joe Blow on the street, and he goes, yeah, of course, and then they go with him. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, you, you wear thick-rimmed glasses and have a haircut that looks like you know how to uh, use computers. Can we do this? Do you know what a fountain pen is? Okay, you're you're hired. Um, the, the four uh, so these so these four uh, crypt, uh, crypto experts are uh, Stanford professor Martin Hellman. They've asked these are the people who were asking the FBI to explain what the hell they're talking about, not the people who said this was possible, mind you. Um, Mar- Martin Hellman of Diffie Hellman. Wow, I can't believe I I bet is he retired? He probably woke up and read this in the newspaper. It's like God. Jesus Christ, I have to write a letter. (laughs) (laughs) The Diffie-Hellman key exchange, of course, is what allows people to have the modern version of uh, basically public key cryptography. Why can't I talk? I think it's because I'm trying to go so quickly, and I'm just stumbling over myself. It's like... talking about it isn't helping, so let's No, but it's like when you listen to a podcast on one and a half times, and it just like, it like cuts over itself, that's what my brain is doing with my mouth. And okay, but uh, let's make it snappy now. Okay. Oh, yeah. Eric you you make a white ring joke. We've thing. got time for that. Anyway, all four this week, they, uh, what is it? So, uh, Martin Hellman, not to be confused with the mayonnaise, um, Columbia professor mm. and Usenet co creator Steve Belovin, Belovin top crypt- uh, cryptographer Paul Kocher, and information security guru Bruce Schneier. These are important people. And, uh, a guru. Yeah. <laughs> but Bruce Schneier, uh, he has that. Uh, he is that cryptographer or security blog that's very uh what is that called christian you you've you've seen this before uh this isn't helping the i feel like guru is a, becoming a negative term like dr oz is a guru of doctors 
Well, every, I mean, all, all of these I things. I keep on going back to stretched. childhood experience with this uh, uh, guy who worked behind a Starbucks, saying he was a guru, but he's sure. a <laughs> he's a caffeine guru. So he's a, yeah. Anyway, um, excuse me. That's uh, that's really about it. Um, so Tyler, you wanted to talk about Russia, and uh, no. they are that is the biggest story out of this week. Social media. Savages steal the show. Excuse me. <clears throat> Let's hear it from our news department. Good morning, I'm Brazans. News to you. Washington, D.C. The United States Department of Justice has indicted stewards of social media injustice. The name's Charles of Russia, who have been charged with influencing the 2016 election. Utilizing plain-sounding names like the Internet Research Corporation and Concord Catering, agents connected to the Kremlin spent untold amounts of money setting up Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube accounts to lead disinformation efforts against Hillary Clinton. Such trolls were accused of stealing the identities of U.S. persons, using that information to set up rallies and other political events without notifying the Federal Election Commission. While there's been no link found to the Trump campaign so far, it hasn't stopped the clamoring for something that probably just doesn't exist. The amount of money spent on social media against Clinton pales in comparison to the amount of money spent by her campaign. It is hard for this reporter to believe that these trolls convinced enough people to swing the ballot in her favor. So what happens to computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to You. That's right. Uh, I read through the Department of Justice's indictment, by the way. It's 37 pages. And uh, did you read that, Tyler? No, not yet. No, before you started making all these comments about Russia, you didn't read the report. Come on. There's a Project Latka. Lock, yeah, there's a Project Latka. And not to be confused with the delicious potato pancakes that Jews love or the character that Andy Kaufman played on Taxi. Um, this, I believe, is a state-run propaganda arm. It's a, it's a propaganda arm of the Kremlin. And they have an ex- a pretty large budget monthly of over uh, $1.25 million. Now, the thing is, is that it seems like this Project Latka, Latka, Lakta, L-A-K-H-T-A, Lakta, Lakta, um, they, they operate in multiple countries, and they try to have their fingers in a lot of different countries' affairs, much like what we do with Voice of America. Did you know that we spend $218 million a year, that's much more than $1.25 million a month, on propagating our pro-America message to the rest of the world. So it's no surprise that someone from another country has a similar thing and that some of the stuff that we say to them, they're doing back to us. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying two wrongs make a right. But this is kind of what it is. And when we have this overarching media imperialism, it's only, it, we, it's only a matter of time before some, some of it comes back at us. And the other thing, that the, the money and the influence, Facebook said that there's 100, 126 million users saw Russian disinformation on Facebook, but the ad spends for the social media campaign, they were very low. And I, unless, unless they were the, the most 
well-targeted messages, I don't believe that these really influence the election any more than Fox News or any other Republican arm. Yes, they had I'm, fake Twitter accounts, and that's what they got them on. That if you're setting up political rallies or there's, or there's money involved in elections that's changing hands, the Federal Election Commission has to be informed of what's going on. And this didn't happen, and there was identity theft. That's, why, that's how they got these Russians. Um, I will say that, A, it's, it's exceptionally hard to measure the impact here, and it's something totally new, so it's almost impossible to fully tell. I don't um, believe that. I just can't believe that the American election was swayed by social media posts made by fake people. I'm sorry. Really? Eight, eight, you think 80,000 votes couldn't be swayed on Twitter or Facebook? You don't think that could get 80,000 more people to the polls or not to the polls? Like, that's, that's easily accomplished. And, uh, and then the other thing is that there's, there's no proof that this is all of it. This could simply be the tip of the iceberg, which it seems to be more and more every day as more and more things keep coming out. So I'm staying objective here, and uh, I'm not going to come to any conclusions yet. You already have come to a conclusion. You're not objective at all. You've come to the conclusion that Russia has influenced the election and caused Donald Trump to win, which is not the case. But no, we can I talk don't about know that. that. I just we can said talk that about it's that impossible to say that. Anyway, I, let's move on because this, uh, this is not a political show. No. Exactly. Thank you. Even yes, even though we already did two episodes in Russia, I would recommend uh, that sh- people sh- listen sh- to sh- them. Sh- 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 <laughs> we aren't five-year-olds here. Come on. Okay. We can talk about that tomorrow. Or I mean, when I when I when I say tomorrow, I mean you know next week. Where's my thing? Oh, that's right. Why don't we take a little break? Zephyrus, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five-borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Simply go to www.whereamidentnyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find your closest neighborhood, borough, and three subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no tracking, just geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I? Brought to you by Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media daily. Okay. No shout-outs this week because we're short on time. We actually did not save any more time than we usually do. Ugh. Imagine that. Imagine that. I was trying. Yeah, come on, come on. Okay. Well, uh... I need to. I need to change where my. I need to change where the soundboard is because I keep having to scroll through stuff, and it takes away from the show. And it's just really, really, really annoying. It's not this one. Can't stop that. Uh, where is it? Where's our thing? There's the. Ah, here we go. This week, more JavaScript. So why don't? Why don't you tell us about JavaScript, Christian? No. Sure. So Last it's this well, abomination that came about in the uh, mid '90s. And... Just like you know, I'm kidding. Oh, I'm kidding. You're much older wow. than that. No, the thing is, is uh, let's let's take a step back. So our first episode about JavaScript last week, we talked about the quick history, as we usually do. We talked about how JavaScript was supposed to be Scheme, which is a functional programming language based on calculus. Uh, they wanted uh, Bre- uh, Brendan Eich wanted JavaScript to be Scheme for the web browser. There was an initial marketing attempt made uh, with uh, Sun Microsystems to try to get the real Java in the browser, uh, but that didn't work. And uh, they ended up creating this hodgepodge of languages that looked like Java but worked like Scheme called, eventually, JavaScript. Does that sound good? 
Yep. Okay. Then we also talked about different JavaScript engines and different JavaScript runtimes and how everything is kind of compiled in a JavaScript runtime environment. Um, and things called crankshaft, abstract syntax trees, high-level static single assignment representations, hydrogen graphs, low-level representations, uh, machine code, and on-stack replacement. We talked about inline caching. And uh, we touched on the JavaScript event loop. Now, why don't we start there? The JavaScript event loop. Uh, sure. What is, what, is, what is an event loop generally? So in a general sense, it's uh, this uh, loop you build around uh, these a, um, asynchronous... Uh, uh, these async uh, ABIs of your operating system. So it, it is always... Well, specific. wait a second. Would you, I, I would say it's a way to build asynchronicity into a synchronous environment. No. No? No, that's incredibly incorrect. <laughs> Why? Because... A, loop, a while loop is synchronous. That's, these... Yes, that's not what this is, though. Okay. So you have your while loop, right? Uh -huh. But that's only after you have uh, using your, your uh, ABI to your asynchronous events, which are uh, like in uh, uh, Windows select, Linux you have select, poll, or epoll, uh, the BSD family you have KQ, and uh, Solaris you have dev poll, which is actually like a device that you uh, deal with. And with those, you set up uh, these uh, events on file descriptors on those. And then you loop around those to see, okay, is there data ready on any of these file descriptors, or are these file descriptors ready for write, or something like these? But what I'm saying is, is that that type of looping is essentially synchronous operation. And no, it's not. How is it not? Because, well, so it depends also on which one you're using, because like if you're using like Linux Select, it is in fact actually synchronous, and you're just waiting for the next thing to come through, while if you're using like ePoll, it's not, it's not synchronous at all. You're actually not like in a code loop at all. You're, you're just saying, like, on an event, do this thing. But what on the other side of that is checking for that event constantly? That's got to be... The kernel. And that's running a loop, isn't it? No. 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 In fact, the Linux kernel is loopless. Really? Yes. That's pretty cool. Okay. Well, the JavaScript event loop is usually just, like, while wait for message then process next message. Well, you do have, a, in fact, have a loop, and it's just like an infinite loop until, uh, like, the program uh, finishes. But that's what I'm but talking about. That's the synchronicity. Not that's not synchronous at all, though. Why? You, you, the because while you have code. loop is one instruction while no, wait it's for not, message. No, it's not a while loop in that sense, because you still, within the same thread, have code executing computational uh, instructions. It's not blocking your computational instructions when the loop is uh, executing. That is just waiting for events to come in. Which is but what the, the kernel's doing for you. But once it, it waits until an event comes in, and then when an no, event does, it, it processes it. It only waits if you don't have co uh, code running. You, like, your program won't uh, exit when you when you still have the loop uh, running, but you're allowed to execute within the same exact thread, so within the same execution context, you're allowed to execute computational code while the loop is waiting for events to come in. It's only once those events have come in that it'll execute new code that is also synchronous because it's computational. Interesting. So, it, each message is processed completely before any other message is processed. This offers some nice properties when reasoning about your program, including the fact that whenever a function runs, it cannot be preempted and will run entirely before any other code runs and can modify the data that the function manipulates. That sounds like synchronous. This differs from C... It's wait, wait, let me finish this and then you can butt in. This differs from C, for instance, where if a function runs in a thread, it can be stopped at any point to run some other code in another thread. 
So that's threaded. That's not asynchronous. You can do asynchronous in C as well. I don't know where you're reading this from, this, but this is kind of uh, missing a lot of details for a C can uh, do this too. It's Mozilla's developer uh, library thing. Oh, yeah. That's weird. But, so, C can also do asynchronous I.O. with, uh, like, whether you're using, like, direct uh, kernel APIs, like, uh, ePoll. But, essentially, this loop is not... But that's, that's environment or OS specific. But every OS has something, is my point. I'm just using ePoll as an example. Okay. And, but here's what I don't understand. So it says, a downside of this model is that if a message takes too long to complete, the web application is unable to process user interactions like click or scroll. I get it, because it's all happening that, in a single thread, but that still sounds synchronous. That's correct. Well, no, because you, uh, you have an, uh, the idea is the message happens, and then you have something actually going on, some code that executes on that. That code blocks, because that's computational code. So it's when you're waiting for these events to happen, which are, are from an operating system's perspective, it's all I.O., whether it's user input or uh, network input or something. It, you have these things that are all just uh, I.O., you're waiting for stuff to come over on a file descriptor. And uh, in the meantime, you can execute a computational code, but it all comes in an order. So like event A ex uh, gets triggered, and then event B gets triggered. Event A's uh, code is going to be executed first. And event B's code can't be executed until event A's code gets finished. Okay, but what keeps going around and around to check for these different events? How is that not just a regular that's, loop? That's in the kernel, you have your, your, your asynchronous ABI that's just waiting for data on these fi file descriptors. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, let's take a look at, at something like set timeout, because we talked about last time how set timeout, you have... Uh, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to, to say this. Let me cut the music. The music is getting... It's taking some brain power away. Um, what is it? So when you have a function like set timeout, that, put, that puts this code at the end of your event frame. Mm -hmm. And then it executes, even if it has a delay of zero, it executes outside of, or not outside of, after all of the other code in that frame has executed. So it may actually take longer time than the amount that you set in the timeout to execute. Mm -hmm. That sounds very synchronous. I mean, the, the call to set timeout obviously takes a function and a delay, so that's the code inside of the function is not being run when it's called. I'm sorry, when it's written. Well, so set timeout works Is that technically asynchronous then? So set timeout works in uh, such a way that if you have a certain value added, it'll add a tick to the event loop where it's once that time has passed, it'll trigger the event. But if you have, say, a uh, set timeout of zero, it'll just be once the, you're re ready to receive an event, it'll execute. So it's putting it on top of the queue uh, if you have a uh, set timeout of zero. Granted, if you have other events that have come in already, those will execute. But if you say your event your your event queue is empty, uh, no events have happened on the loop right now, and you're just waiting for for stuff, and you have code executing, okay, and you have a set timeout of zero that gets put in the queue, uh, that call frame finishes, and then it sees oh I have something in the event queue, let me see what that is. Oh, it's just the whatever I set the timeout to, so I can uh, ex execute that now. Gotcha, Tyler. How do you what do you think about this? It's pretty cool. It's I mean, are you getting it? Yeah, I'm getting it. It's just a lot of, it's almost semantics, but it's not. But yeah. So why don't you say? So why don't you explain how this is is not synchronous code? Because I seem to be missing something. Um, my understanding of it is, is that down at at the very core of Linux, which I need to read up a little bit more. But any operating system, but Linux is the example I was using. Sorry. Um. Yeah. It seems that there's not something. <sighs> Sitting in a loop, it's just it's just all event based. So when one thing fires, it runs, and then that fires off an event that tells 
that tells the core it can run another event, which fires something else. Right, that all that sounds asynchronous, but I had always thought that there was some kind of loop that just never ended that just keeps oscillating through all the different event handlers and checking each one, there those queues to see if they have data. There is no, a loop. I guess if it's more of a chain of, of, of callbacks, then it... You know, yes, so no it, there is a loop, but it's not a loop in the synchronous sense. It's a loop in, this, in like more of a logical sense of it just keeps on uh, going uh, back to the start events. when it gets to the end. It's like yes. a blockchain of callbacks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Which is which is your stack, mm-hmm. basically? And it, and it makes sense, like to me, because if something breaks, you just say, "Oh, that broke," and then we called the the something broke function, the air. We threw an air, and then we can tell the kernel, "Okay, keep." doing whatever you need to do, go back, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we can't because everything's totally busted, busted. But it's a chain like that. Yep. Gotcha. Um, okay. Uh, well, let's see. JavaScript runtimes contain a message queue, which stores a list of messages. We talked about that. To be processed, and their associated callback functions. These messages are queued in response to an external events like we just mentioned, like a mouse being clicked or you're scrolling or whatever, uh, given that a callback function has been provided. If, for example, a user were to click a button and no callback was provided, no message would then have been enqueued. In a loop, the queue is pulled for the next message. So in a loop, the queue is pulled for the next message. How is that yes, not synchronous? Because it's a logical loop. It's, okay. not, it's not like a while or a for like you're thinking. But Mozilla had the while as an example. It's always a callback. When this ends, do that thing. Yes. This fired, okay. now do that. This fired, All right, I guess I, t- I... Okay, I guess I took it too literally. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right, so in, in a logical loop, not a synchronous while loop, the queue is pulled for the next message, and each pull is referred to as a tick. And when a message is encountered, the callback for that message is executed. Uh, this calling of the callback function serves as the initial frame in the call stack... And due, to the, and due to JavaScript being single-threaded, further message polling and processing is halted pending the return of all calls on the stack. Now, I know that you could use web workers and other ways of getting around the single-threaded nature of JavaScript, but just on its own, JavaScript is a single-threaded environment. Right. Okay. I, I like when you say right. It makes me feel like I do know things. <laughs> I need to get that on the sound bite. So, anyway. Um... It's not your father's approval. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, All right. So we talked about set timeout. If in the same call frame, which is when... What is is a call frame, Christian? Call call frame is a... uh, Kind of like a piece of the stack. So you have your call stack, which is uh, the list of instructions and any non-heap allocated data. Okay. So the data that's local to a function. So a call frame is generally speaking a uh, a single function call and like everything subsequently within it that then can point to another call frame of like you say if you call another function within that function then that points to another call frame that you then go into and uh, so each call frame is just uh, a grouping of instructions and data uh, until uh, a return is called somewhere. And then it all kind of returns up the stack and then back out. And And you could say a call frame is the amount of code executed in a single tick in the JavaScript event loop. Right, so I, I explained it in a very more C-like way. Uh, Higher-level languages can abstract a, what a call frame is to a single tick. Uh, Go does it in a um, very rather interesting way, but uh, since this is a JavaScript episode, let's not get into that. Okay. Well, that's not necessarily bad if you can explain it in a succinct matter that gives a comparison to something else, a different strategy that might be employed by a language. 
Well, so Go does it in such a way that uh, do you kind of have like a underlying C? Fu- um, I shouldn't say an underlying C function because it's not literally that, but a um, operating system uh, uh, function to a series of functions that once it can determine that it can return this value, it will actually return rather than when you call return. Okay, so it's checking things a little more to make sure that the whole system or program doesn't crash because of something bad? Uh, more so like you have certain uh, instructions that seem like magic, like uh, Go has this defer thing, which is kind of like doing a set timeout of zero, where before... Uh, or is um, it like a promise in JavaScript? No, uh, it's not It's not like that. That's more like how Python's deferred is, which is actually specific to a certain single third-party library. But Is it more like an immediately invoked function? No, it's uh, the, Go does have that, but that's not this. This is like uh, you actually say this next function, place it at right before I return this function. So it which can is execute. basically what happens when you use that timeout with the zero. Correct, correct. So that's that's what I'm comparing here is like defer. Uh, the reason why Go doesn't, when you call return, isn't actually returning is the return statement gets ev- evaluated, but then your defer function can execute, and then the function actually returns. Uh. Huh. So it's like a, it's almost like a middleware hook. Mm-hmm. So if you have a function, and actually it's funny because uh, in this example they use change header deferred as the name, and then it, it has a function for set timeout. Inside of that has a function called change header, which actually changes the style of the header on the page, and that mm-hmm. has a re- that says return false. And that's inside of the set timeout. And then there's another return false for the change header deferred. So when change header deferred returns false, then that will actually execute the set timeout change header inner function. Yeah, so that is behaving a lot like how you use goes defer. So you would so but but the thing is is that the return would be executed first before the set timeout function would be. Right. Okay. Well, so the return in go it's the return statement, but then the actual function return like. The deferred function can actually modify the return value in Go. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could do that with some scope in JavaScript, but that's kind of... I know that's different. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because uh, the, the callbacks in these... You, well, the functions that are used inside of set timeout, uh, that they're part of a different message in terms of these event message queues than the ones that they were created. So they might actually, so they might get executed completely separately from the main function code, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah, so is, that, is that just how it is in terms of just stuff arriving well, on, on the queue? So you, can the queue? For, for a few, you can do this for a few reasons. Like, one good way is... Uh, um, Basically, any error state minus like a fetal crash of some sort of the program, you ensure that that set timeout function gets executed. Okay. And in the case of um, where was I going? Oh, and in the case of like uh, you just want to do like some cleanup or something like uh, say you're on the back end and you uh, are dealing with uh, actual file, raw file descriptors, you have to close the file descriptor once you're done reading or writing to it. You could uh, use set timeout for that, or if you just have like some computationally heavy code and you want to get everything else out of the way first within that tick, you could use set timeout for that. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Nice. Um, were you going to say something, Tyler? I said nice, but it didn't come out very strong. Oh yeah, I only heard this. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, let's. Uh, I, I think that's. Uh, everything that we have to talk about with the JavaScript event loop, is there anything else that you want to add? 
Well, I think that's the front end. Do we want to talk about nodes event loop? Um, yeah. How different well, I was are gonna, they? <laughs> I wanted to talk about how JavaScript renders, but you know what? This might actually be a better order. So node is the server side or a mm-hmm. server side runtime for JavaScript that's based on that's based in C. It utilizes a couple of C libraries like libevent well, and based lib- in C plus plus. C plus plus. Sorry. But, yeah. But it uses a couple of C, C libraries, or are they C++ libraries? C, they use a few C libraries, because C++ can use C libraries. But uh, when you execute Node, it is actually technically a C++ program. Gotcha. And uh, like LibUV, which is not a library for Univision. Uh, <laughs> what is what is LibUV? I know yeah, we've talked so, about this before. So well, I think uh, to pre- preface that, uh, LibEvent was the original event loop in Node. It was uh, commonly used to see uh, basically abstraction around these OS-specific uh, asynchronous You were a- saying ABIs. ABI, not API. What is ABI? So ABI is the way of when, it, when it's a matter of the kernel. I forget what the, it actually stands for, but the, it is essentially an API for kernel-specific behavior. Huh. Yes. Okay. Like getting stuck in your teeth. <laughs> okay, and uh, so so the first so the first event abstractor for OS events was libevent. And... Sorry, it's application binary interface. Ah, there we go. Yeah. Not to be confused with application programming interface or API. Yes. Interesting. Mm. Are ABIs APIs? In a way, semantically, yes, but they're they, not by. From a technical perspective, they're a little different. Uh, Let's see. An ABI defines how structures or computational routines are accessed in machine code. Uh, In contrast, an API, I don't want to pop on the P's, defines this access in source code, which is relatively high level, relatively hardware independent, and often human readable. A common aspect of an ABI is the calling convention, which determines how data is provided as input or read as output from computational routines, such as the x86 calling conventions. Yeah, and or in this case, syscalls. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so libevent was the first abstractor for these right. ABIs provided and by the, the OS. The issue was uh, there were some memory limits as well as uh, Node was rather tightly coupled to it, and uh, they also had to put like a lot of code in there just to make it a little more JavaScripty. What do you mean Node was tightly coupled to it? I mean, oh, sorry, I, I thought about that the other way around. Yeah. Um, okay. And like, there's a lot of code in there to just take it from like a C-like uh, coding pattern to more of a JavaScript coding pattern. So then the creators of Node actually created libuv, which okay. is a much more higher performant one. Uh, uh, I've I use it in my uh, uh, day job in our uh, DNS server. It's really cool. Uh, we use it in C++, uh, though. But uh, so libuv, um, it, it provided a much more uh, succinct uh, coding pattern for Node, and it uh, looks a lot more like uh, the standard library calls that you make in Node. Uh, rather than JavaScript-style C code. Yes, and then also you can... On the same file descriptor, you can do synchronous and asynchronous uh, I.O. Uh, so that's where you get that synchronous read and synchronous write. Uh, now explain the, exactly uh, what a file descriptor is. In so a file descriptor, system. think of it as a, a numerical value that functions as a pointer to an actual file in the uh, kernel space. Is it really numerical, like an integer? Yeah, so standard... Uh, Standard, uh, I want to say standard in is zero, standard out is one, standard error is two, oh. and then from there it's your uh, other files. So when you see like in Linux where it goes like and two greater than one, that's what that is. That's like piping, that's like standard error pipe into error standard, error out. standard out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, in, it's in bash code all the time too. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, so, all right. So you've got libuv. That's the base. That's the base, and that provides the interface between the operating system and an abstracted event environment, which then well, no, it is. It is the libuv is the or it is uh, the abstracted environment, yeah. right? Um, and then and then that is used by Node's native API. Yeah, so everything's loaded through. It's technically V8's uh, native API that then gets loaded into the Node program. Okay. So you're using this native code, and there's a few other things that Node uses, like their HTTP message parser, uh, how it handles SSL. It's all actually done in uh, like C, C++. And then you have V8 execute, uh, being able to expose that into your JavaScript uh, uh, VM. Gotcha. So is, so is Node... Executing in a, uh, in a JavaScript virtual machine? Node is the virtual is machine. It's a virtual for machine for JavaScript. Yes. Well, I should say V8, which is part of Node. So Node is actually the coupling of all these things together. Well, V8 together. is just the renderer, though. That's the same renderer that's in Chrome. Well, it's not a renderer. It's I a, mean, engine, uh, sorry. JIT, JIT compiler, yes. Oh, okay. It's a compiler. JIT right. compiler. Just, just in time. time. Which we talked saying. about last week. You'd J-I-T. think I would have known that. Um, okay. And so what Node itself is just a coupling of all these as well, some, like, standard libraries around uh, being able to do uh, certain things. Gotcha. So is the the source code for Node very large? Because it seems like it's just kind of stringing these things together that already exist. There's... So it got much smaller with the introduction of libuv over libuvent. Okay. That makes sense. there's there's still certain things in there that uh, exist that uh, it's... C++ will will never be a small code base. (laughs) But uh, it, it, it's uh, <laughs> like it's, is that a small? Uh, is that .NET web app small? <laughs> it, okay, C plus plus isn't that bad, but <laughs> but no, like, yeah, it's always going to come bad. with some stuff. Mm-hmm. Is, is that Rails app really minimalistic? No. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, these Node apps, you know, Node may be minimal, but uh, it's not the the apps that use Node are not. So there's a lot well, of. They- they can be, but uh, so one of the reasons why a node is considered much lighter weight than, say, like uh, the Ruby interpreter is because it's this single thread running with, with libuv, so it's a very efficient thing. That even if you have a bunch of code execution in there, as long as you're not like using JavaScript for the wrong reason and you're doing a lot of I/O, it's actually very minimal overhead because it's almost directly going from like kernel space. There's an I/O happening to your user space. Run some code. Gotcha. Well, I was more. I was. I was talking more about how people just l- install a ton of Node modules and oh, sure. load those into memory, and then make those require dependencies, and that's what adds the the, the heft to Node. Not, for sure. It's 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 like a fat guy in skinny jeans. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, if, if Node has a V8 engine, the Ruby interpreter runs on wheels. I mean, on, squ- on square wheels. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, with Ruby, it just allocates all your memory ahead of time, so it's more like uh, buy all of the gasoline you need for a year, then run. But then you have to That's carry not- the gas with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, That's Ruby. So, all right. So, we talked about... So, JavaScript has its own event loop, which we just talked about. Now, Node has its own event loop that operates on top of or inside of the JavaScript one. Um, well, no. No, they're, they're separate ones. So, Chrome, Firefox, all of these have their own implemented uh, uh, event loops. They might even use one of these libraries themselves. But it's like this one... Uh, yeah, Chrome uses the V8 engine, right? so, 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 you got a V8 engine on top of a V8 engine? So uh, wait, well, so the V8 the the V8, V8 is compiler, just the compiler, right? The V8 compiler doesn't have an event loop, and instead of making 
Oh, I see what you're saying. So every everything that implements JavaScript has to recreate or re-implement the basic JavaScript event loop. And instead of doing that, Node has created its own event loop. Yeah, well, there's plenty of these libraries that do asynchronous I.O. And so they just did this one. That was uh, basically to solve the fact that, like, they weren't really written for JavaScript, these seam ones originally. Ah, yeah. So uh, there's uh, uh, Node.js has this diagram that I remember studying when I was uh, looking for job interviews, and uh, this is a very girl. valid. This is a very uh, specific question, by the way, that they tend to ask on web developer job interviews. Uh, describe the Node event loop. How is the best way? I mean, <laughs> I pretty circle. much I, I pretty much drew this diagram on a whiteboard, and I was like, here it is. But <laughs> that's a circle, sir. <laughs> uh, but how how is how is the best way? To describe it, it has timers, I.O. callbacks, idle and prepare statements, polling, checking, and close callbacks. Give us the answer, Christian. Well, I might not have the textbook answer here, but... Uh, you the are way the I, textbook. The way I view it is, like, you, you uh, first uh, are interpreting all the code in V8, and uh, while it's doing that, it's doing the JIT compilation, so you're executing your initial code, which is setting up these listeners for events. So that's... Uh, on, like all of a sudden saying uh, in the event loop have these uh, things that will listen for events uh-huh. and then w- once you have all of your regular code uh, finished now you just have the loop uh, running waiting for these events to happen and you can have like you mentioned timers well the uh, thing is is that node specifically separates out IO events from timer events so the first right. the, it, it executes all the callbacks except IO callbacks first then it executes mm-hmm. all the all of the I/O callbacks, with the exception of the ones that are closed callbacks, like socket dot on close, or your other other tear down events. Uh, and right. Then it so goes, this is actually libuv, not node specific. Really? So this is the same yeah. kind of phase process that libuv so has. That makes it sense. Does gi- it does give priority, but in a sense, they are all in, intermingled. It is the case though that if you have these ones that are going to be lighter weight, like timers, run those first. And then you have the ones that are more application-specific that uh, could be heavy. And then you have your cleanup ones, which really you just don't want those to run before you run other things. Because it's just like, even though that like your code should be handling the order, the ability for it to um, call the cleanup at the end is just safer. Gotcha. Um, do you want to go into each of these phases? I guess we gave, we gave a pretty decent overview. Excuse me. Yeah, I, I think we uh, gave a good idea there. Yeah. Um, let's see. So we did timers, I.O. callbacks, close callbacks. Uh, set immediate versus set timeout. What are the differences between those? Those are almost there. I honestly don't know. I could set, set immediate is designed to execute a script once the current pull phase completes. Set timeout schedules a script to be run after a minimum threshold in time has been, has been elapsed. So set immediate... Okay, so set immediate... Of- Puts it on the top of the queue. But it's it's interesting because timers are still executed first in terms of the event loop. So the the it's not it's they're still executed before like I/O callbacks. So what would really unless you had if you gave set timeout a zero timer, how different would that really be for, from set immediate? I don't I don't know actually. Hmm. So it says so it says set immediate is is before the poll callback which is after the timer callback i mean after the timer phase in the event loop so well paul is actually saying like okay do i have any events right now so the way it looks is like uh you have your regular code execute and then it says do i have any timers do i have any io 
then it goes I- idle for uh, uh, basically preparing, which is like setting up the listeners. And then it, any new listeners, I should say. And then poll will actually say, hey, do I have any events? At then, which point it looks like check immediate would execute. And, it, so, and it's it, you, you, so in in like the sense if your loop's already running, pull putting pull at, in like the middle of the loop, I think makes a lot of sense logically because then it's like okay, ne- next like that's your that's your midnight, and then one a.m. is uh, run set set immediate, and then from there uh, you go back through the loop. Right. So it actually when it pulls for any sort of changes, that's almost like you said, that's like the midnight. And mm-hmm. when it comes back, and then it immediately does the set immediate stuff, and then it has to, and it still has to keep ticking, it, it, even though it's not at the beginning of that process tick, it still kind of is. It's hard to explain because it's it's kind of both first and in the middle of a loop. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. It's like immediately after you pull, which is basically the freshest information, which would be basically another tick run this function that's set immediate and then set timeout does after the polling after the checking and after the close callbacks then it does the timer again so mm-hmm. it's interesting because why don't they i mean it's it, that they don't start it off with polling in this diagram well so this is like uh i think it makes sense if it's uh well one you call process that next take so timers will execute first but also in the sense that uh, it, right after all, all of your uh, blocking code executes, so like you're usually set up for for listeners and uh, uh, good JavaScript, you're just going to be like basically like uh, say you're writing an Express app, so uh, uh, new app uh, app dot on get app dot well not on get but like app get post put and those are all the event listeners with routing in between, but then the real listener that you're doing is app dot listen and like host and port. And so that does a little wrapper, though, to say, create a TCP connection, here's the file descriptor on the socket, and so what you're actually pulling on is that socket. And when you call next tick, that's actually the next tick in the event, the next phase, not even the next all the way back to the beginning, right? Yeah, so you could also say, uh, uh, kind of like push work off in like the next phase to later. Right. Or pretty much, yeah. So that's not a whole other iteration of the loop that just the next tick in the pro the next process phase well no it sounds like the uh process that next kick uh, tick does call the next iteration of the loop from uh what uh well here we the, go uh, it yeah. says uh oh let's see uh process dot next tick is not technically part of the event loop instead the next tick queue will be processed after the current operation completes regardless of the current phase of the event loop Looking back at the diagram, which we just mentioned, anytime you call process.nexttick in a given phase, all your callbacks past to process.nexttick will be resolved before the event loop continues. So it is in that phase of the loop. It doesn't go wait for the end of the loop. Mm-hmm. This can create okay. some kind of bad situations because it allows you to starve your I.O. by making recursive process.nexttick calls because it can't advance to the next part of the loop where it gets it, it pulls for new I.O. events. Mm-hmm. Why should that be allowed? Because if you do have certain uh, parts that are, uh, like, um, what's the right word? Uh, more latency critical and you need these things to execute immediately. Oh, I thought you were going to finish that sentence. Which I guess <laughs> it sounded like did. it was going to have an end. Yeah, it did. I guess that was the end. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's what she said? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, anything else to talk about? 
With Node, by the way, two reasons to use process.nextTick allow users to handle errors, uh, clean up any then unneeded resources, or perhaps try the request again before the event loop continues. And two, at times it's necessary to allow a callback to run after the call stack has unwound but before the event loop continues. So hmm. basically like what you like your your server is hmm. setting up stuff emitting events. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you can emit events at the next tick because that's that makes sense. But okay. Um so that's node and let's go back to uh you know what while we're talking about node, why don't we talk about javascript preprocessors? This is, uh, these are things that take your JavaScript, or the, well, these are things that transpile your JavaScript into either another variant of JavaScript or trans, well, or, or I think compiles like another starts, language into right. JavaScript. So yeah. Babel transpiles JavaScript into another version of JavaScript, most notably ES6 down to legacy ES5 and older. Or ES7 now. Or ES7. Um, but it does so much more. Like what? There was a blog post about the new release coming out, and honestly, I forget, but... <laughs> it's a a, couple so things. much more, but I mm. can't remember. Well, so much more was me trolling the company about what they would say. Oh, the, nearing 7.0. Uh, let's yeah. see. Planning for 7. Let's take a look at this. Uh, if you don't know already... Yeah, we just mentioned it. Uh, reiterating project goals, uh, blah, blah, blah. Drop support for unmaintained node versions. Uh, class properties... Uh, object rest spread. Something now about the environment. Non-string keys. Opt- optional catch binding. Uh, ah, interesting. Anyway, basically, it's just making up for more gaps uh, between legacy JavaScript environments and modern JavaScript environments. Uh, but there's others. There's CoffeeScript. What does CoffeeScript do? CoffeeScript was an attempt to make JavaScript laugh. more like Ruby. Ah, not to be confused with Mocha, which was an attempt to make Java more like javascript wait scheme more, more like javascript mocha um okay typescript that's a strongly typed variant of javascript mm-hmm. is that really Arguably a pre-process oh, i guess it does Microsoft's have to run done. it has to transpile that into re- native javascript for it to execute on the browser yep uh dart what's yeah. dart uh similar to typescript uh, it's strictly typed and then on the back end it runs in its own native runtime so it requires a on- server yeah, well, it doesn't it, it require a server necessarily, but it, because in the, it is considered a preprocessor in the sense that you can run it in the browser by transpiling it to JavaScript. But, okay. You can run it in the browser, but then that still downloads, has to download a runtime or something. No, it, it, it transpiles in the, into the, uh, for uh, the, the browser. But then that still but has to the, run in like a server or something, doesn't it? No. Oh. No, it's like using Babel. <laughs> right, that still runs as a, as a part of your build process right oh oh never mind right exactly we're talking pre-processors yes, yeah, 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 yeah 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 i got you i got you okay uh trans it's half semantics all the time <laughs> trans, that's all that programming is tyler is just semantics uh sometimes so it's so half semantics arguments. like today <laughs> so uh transcript python to javascript uh go for js go to go to javascript i almost said something else uh joy go for it what's another what's the difference between gopher and joy uh, they're just different projects that uh, came about. Uh, Gopher.js does have support for uh, Go routines, though, so that's cool. But um, single-threaded Go routines. But uh, what's a Go routine? Does go routine is uh, well, no, it's Go's uh, c- a concurrent. 
It goes basic concurrency construct. Thread on the run? Kind of like, yeah, like, a, a, so it's a green thread, so it says, like, take an OS thread and be able to run multiples of these on this th- thread. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And what's buckle script? Buckle script is OCaml to JavaScript. What's OCaml? A functional systems programming language. That's what you say when you get trampled in the desert. Oh, camel! Let's <laughs> <laughs> oh, back myself up. Uh, Basically, al- any, anything to prevent people from writing JavaScript directly. <laughs> and there's also Flow, by the way, which is a type uh, uh, like TypeScript. It's a strongly typed um, uh, preprocessor for JavaScript. And uh, don't forget uh, about Objective J, guys. Wait, that's a thing. Oh yeah, Objective JS. Objective J, yeah, you can make your JavaScript look just like Objective C. I'm an Objective J. Dear God, why? Um, <laughs> because Objective C is an abomination. Wait, oh, this is bad. Um, you know, it's JavaScript. like let's combine two really bad ideas. But it <laughs> yeah. already. But what is the why? Why would you? Because do you, this? if you write Objective C, but you don't write other programming languages, normal ones, then you don't know how to write other code. So you, but you Objective know, C is why not just like do WebAssembly then? Hybrid of programming languages you can do WebAssembly then isn't objective c <laughs> basically like java in c plus plus no 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 oh, no, 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 no so fact, weird uh, objective c was like uh like one of the first attempts to extend c into an object-oriented language in fact and i it think it out, it c java-y, plus. doesn't it it no, turns out being anything it's, but it's, c it's its own thing it's very its own thing okay but uh, my my question though is WebAssembly is a thing. Why do that? <laughs> I don't know. Programs written in Objective J need to be pre-processed before running. But yeah, uh, hold on. Uh, Objective J is a programming language developed as part of the Cappuccino web development framework. Its syntax is nearly identical to the Objective C syntax that it shares with JavaScript, and it shares with JavaScript the same relationship that Objective C has with the C programming language. That being that of being a strict but small superset. Adding a traditional inheritance, which ES6 kind of has, and I guess not. ES6's inheritance is kind of is a is a is a band aid over the old inheritance. I'll yeah. say this though, but it if, looks like if, traditional inheritance. What was that? If title? I if I was able to use Objective J to just pop open like Xcode to drag and drop components into my web page and just build it like that, I'd be a little tempted. Yeah, but you could also use something like React Native and then go the other way, and then have your have, well, that's not really ten, going the other way so much as like a, a JavaScript runtime in Objective C. Right, but then if you're creating something in Objective C for the web, then why not just create something for the web that would just run natively? What? Never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, 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 let's see. Uh, pure JavaScript being a prototype-based language is not really true anymore. Well, it is it is true, but it, it's not exposed as that much. In Partially ESX. semantics. <laughs> I mean, it is semantics because they steamrolled over the previous JavaScript <laughs> era with ES6, but not really. It continues so... to be like it continues to be the Windows me well, of programming it's still, languages. It's still pro- prototypical inheritance. It's just now you have an extends keyword, right? Which makes it look like it's traditional inheritance but it's not it's yeah, so you, you hard to like, also, like i like said, access the prototype like I said, though. javascript continues to be the windows me of programming languages cuz i don't know what that means when microsoft was developing windows millennium edition me they Millennial. really were shooting there was they wanted to figure out how to make windows 
run the consumer version of Windows run on the Windows NT kernel, which was in Windows 2000 and Windows NT, uh, that was much more stable than the Windows 9X kernel. But it created a bunch of device driver issues. It created a bunch of uh, a bunch of stuff that they didn't really rectify until Windows XP a couple years later. And so what happened was Microsoft couldn't hit their release deadline, so they com- came up with this really bad combination of Windows NT and Windows 98, and it was called Windows Me. And basically, that's what JavaScript was because it was a, a horrible marriage between something that looked like java but was actually like scheme and then es 2016 or es6 was another one of these like it looks like it's a it looks like it's java and they did it again it looks like it's java but it's really not i don't well, and they just I think they tried to be more java. other things what was that i think they tried to be a little more pythonic with their new python and ruby i think is where they tried to get, uh, get more from es6 pythonic i like it I mean, there's, it doesn't look anything like Java to me because they skipped the paragraph of declarations just to define something. <laughs> what are you yes. talking about? Import? They have tons of import statements Yeah, now. I know, but when you define a function, function this, instead of function, blah, 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 type this, blah, 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 well, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you use TypeScript, type that would be different. Yeah. The only yeah, difference there typing. is the weak typing. Yeah, I know. It's so ugly in Java. <laughs> no, but that's what you want. You want strong typing. Well, I mean, not you... It's just, it's, I don't know. Anyway, Just stop. Getting, okay. this is another semantic Just let argument. me have it. God. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyway, we're not going to touch Objective-J. Um, we actually mentioned ES6 imports and exports because that is a new construct in uh, this new version of JavaScript. JavaScript mm-hmm. modules. What right. is a JavaScript module? Well, so on the back end, you had this for a while, and I think people kind of carried it over the front end with like Require.js and then Browserify. Right. And then finally, ES6 import modules. But uh, so with all of these, the idea is you have uh, code that's packaged in a certain way. Uh, usually it's a single file, which is a lot like how Python works, where you have a, uh, your module is local to a file, and then you can uh, bubble it up from there. And you um, and it's namespaced to that file. So it's not like you, uh, like in C, you include some library, and all of a sudden all the functions are just there like they were written in that same file. Which is part of like C's preprocessor just does that where it literally copies and pastes like the um, intermediate code into a well, single file. Wouldn't that file. just be kind of like inline caching? You could you could say import star. Yeah. So uh, in a low level it does, but uh, so uh, what this is or actually inline, doing though is caching, this, this is linking right. files though, so that way the JIT, the JIT com- uh, compiler will load the second file as well. So uh, it is good to have all of your import statements or require statements be static. So you don't already have code executing. You're just saying load this file, load this file, load this file. Right. And in fact, if you use Webpack, you have to make them static because it's everything's included at compile yeah. time. On the front end, you have to be uh, static. Which on is back annoying end, sometimes, but that's another story. On the back end, it lets you do that, but you really, really shouldn't. One, it lets you... Uh, <laughs> Give me your sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> but so it, it'll let you... Uh, there's an off chance that you're loading code you really shouldn't be. Gotcha. So we've got two kinds of exports. There's named exports and default exports. You could have several named exports per module, but only one default export. And uh, you could use both of them at the same time, but people you really shouldn't. Um, let's name see. So, sex tape. So named <laughs> export. So named exports. You know, you could like if you have a fu- if you have a utility library, all of your functions inside of that utility library could just say export function square which will return the square of a number. And then you could say import square from <laughs> utils.js, and you actually don't need the JS. And, uh, and then you'll have a local 
or rather a, a quote-unquote global square function reference. When you do these exports, though, it actually only exports the function once. So what you can do is you can export, let's say you have, you're describing a class in, in JavaScript, which is possible with ES6, and you export an instance of the class that actually effectively creates a singleton because you could say export new class name and that that instantiation only happens once even if the export is imported multiple times in multiple files so it creates essentially like i said a singleton one class right, you're, that exporting, small. you're exporting that value not the actual call right you're ex- right you're exporting the instance not the class yes um yeah uh let's see um and i think that's pretty that's it for the import export stuff pretty much it pretty much <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about how uh, JavaScript renders, because uh, that's we we kind of left that out of the whole discussion uh, of how uh, how stuff is painted on the screen. Uh, there's repaint, restyling, and reflowing. And it's all MS Paint based, right? Exactly, and I think we can have a fun conversation. So let's put the music back on. I love explaining things to this Mario Paint music, Mario Paint. Anyway, the thing that JavaScript has to do when it interprets your HTML... Maybe we should just turn this off. (laughs) I tried. It's because, you know, it's like when I'm reading something, then it helps. But when I have to, like, read a little bit and and extemporaneously improv, it just takes some brain power away because I just want to dance the music. Anyway, so... You have your HTML source code, you have the DOM tree, and you have your JavaScript and your CSS. And the browser has to create what's called a render tree. It's kind of like a DOM document object model, but not exactly. It doesn't know about styles. Uh, so, um, oh, sorry, it does know about styles. I, I, uh, I misspoke. So if you're hiding a div with something like display none it won't be included in, in the render tree. By the way, if you want to render something but not have it display, you could use visibility hidden in CSS. Uh, and like I said, the render tree does know about styles. So visibility hidden will take up space. It just won't be displayed on the screen. Um, the other invisible elements on the page will not be included in the render tree, like everything inside of the head tag on a, in HTML. A node in the render tree is called a frame or a box like a CSS box, like the CSS box model. And each one of these nodes has the CSS box properties, width, height, border, margin, padding, etc. Once the render tree is constructed, then the browser can paint the tree and the tree nodes on the, on the screen. Now, after that's done initially... I really want to put the music back on, but I just can't. After that's down. done initially, <laughs> after that's done initially, you are, you know the web page is displayed, and you do stuff with it. But all the stuff that you do on the web page may cause the render tree to change, and then it will, or part of it to change. It will have to then be reflowed or repainted. So, uh, changing the information that was used to construct the render tree may result in either of one parts of the render tree will need to be revalidated and the node dimensions recalculated as in everything on the, in, in that part of the render tree has to be recalculated in terms of its size and position and that's called a reflow um, or relayout but it's really it's reflow um, and there's at least one reflow of the page which is the initial layout when everything is calculated it's not really a reflow which is kind of a flow um, 
Also, if parts of the screen need to be updated, either because of changes in their size or because of a stylistic change, uh, that triggers a repaint event, or, or also known as a redraw, which is different, of course, from reflowing the layout, which is where the things are. So we've got two basic things. We have changing the layout and changing the styles. Both of them are expensive calls, uh, it, but that's basically it. Those are those are the basis, the basic. You know what? Fine. I'll turn off the music. Just stupid. Um, anyway, reflows and repaints are the two basic events inside of JavaScript inside of JavaScript rendering. Uh, things that can trigger a reflow or repaint, uh, like adding or, re or removing or updating a DOM node. Hiding a DOM node with display none, uh, which is a reflow and repaint because it changes the style and the layout. Visibility hidden, like I mentioned earlier, only changes, uh, only causes a repaint event, not a reflow, because the the properties geometrically don't change, just the styling of it does. Animating anything, uh, adding a style sheet, tweaking style properties, or doing things like resizing the window, changing the font size, zooming in, or even scrolling. So. And if you notice, when you do scroll, your CPU usage shoots way up because the browser has to repaint, and it does, and it repaints the whole like, in frames, so it looks like it's actually scrolling. It doesn't just repaint where the end is, and you're kind of like, it's like you know, it's like scrolling with your mouse versus scrolling by hitting the scroll bar. Um, it's like the movies on a computer, basically. Huh. Yeah, it's like the credits. Uh, <laughs> and and browsers try their best to kind of merge these events together as best they can, but most of that work needs to be done by the developer because it's in how the develop and how the code is structured kind of triggers these repaints. Um, for an example, let's see. Uh, oh, sorry, I left something out. Uh, so one of the ways that browsers have of mitigating against multiple unnecessary repaints and reflows uh, is to simply not do it. Or not right now. The browser will set up a queue of changes that your scripts require and perform them in batches. This way, several changes that each require a reflow will be combined and only one reflow will be computed. Browsers can add to the queue, change, queue to changes and then flush the queue once a certain amount of time passes or a certain number of changes is reached. By the way, modern JavaScript frameworks like React and Angular will, hand, will try to handle these for you if you stay within their walled garden. Now, with uh, these uh, paints and everything, uh, are they always on the CPU, or can you offload them to a GPU? It's actually usually the... A lot of it is offloaded to the GPU, but that's done at the browser level. So when you have... There are certain things in CSS that cause... That actually cause the GPU to enact, and that's usually... And that's like the transforms and transitions and scaling. Mm -hmm. uh, those CSS properties actually trigger the GPU, which if you want a quick anti-aliasing trick, if you have an aliased image... It's very jagged. To applying a CSS transform colon scale of 0.9999, because I think if you just do scale of one, it won't recognize it, but scaling it just a tiny bit triggers the GPU renderer and actually makes the image look much smoother. And this works the same uh, for, like, if you have to encode text in an image. That really That's helps. a nasty hack. <laughs> it is a nasty hack, but it works. It's uh, not like modern, a third like of CSS, CSS nasty 4, hacks. They have a way of actually doing that properly with CSS selectors. But in the meantime, we have to do this. And it really does. Oh, yeah, I was using, um, I was making a lot of CSS arrows. And the edges in the arrows were coming out really jagged, but, I, but using the, the transform property really smoothed them out. Anyway, this is about JavaScript and not CSS. Um, 
Sometimes, your script may prevent the browser from optimizing these reflows, causing it to flush the queue and perform all the batched changes. This happens when you request, only requesting, style information, such as offset type, left, offset width, offset height, scroll top, left width height, client top, left width height, get computed style, or current style in IE, because they all require recalculating the information. And it's a really bad idea to request this information and then apply it to a new style property, which then causes a repaint. Get it? Because it's Mario Paint? Uh. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, that's, basically, uh, that's basically it. So ways to minimize repaints and reflows. Don't change individual styles one by one. You want to batch them together. But like I said... Uh, well, actually, I don't know if React will, will hold your hand with, with this type of stuff, but I know that they do batch these DOM changes together because they operate, they don't operate with the DOM, they operate with a virtual DOM, which is a virtual, virtualized representation of this, and then every kind of, every tick in their event loop will then apply the DOM changes once they've been batched. Um, yeah, so you're probably right that they optimize it by that time. Right. Uh, but I'm not. But there is there are ways of writing horrible JavaScript code that won't get optimized by React even. Uh, so you should batch your DOM changes and perform them quote unquote offline rather than not in the live DOM tree. So like I said, these the, the uh, these frameworks use a virtual DOM. You could use a document fragment, which I've never used directly, uh, to hold temporary changes, which is just a, another JavaScript or it's, it's like it's another document. You know how you have the document uh, reference in JavaScript. Um, you could clone own the node that you're about to update, work on the copy, and then swap the original with the updated clone so it's not rendered until you switch it out. You could hide the element with display colon none, which is one reflaint. Reflaint! There we go. I came up with a new word. A reflaint is a reflow plus repaint. So reflaint. A reflaint. Uh, so if you hide your element with a display none, that is one reflaint, and then you can change it, and you restore the display, that's another reflaint, that actually is only two reflow repaint events, I guess that's a total of four, but rather, but every time you'd have to do a change to this element, it would trigger another one, so you really save a bunch. And then don't ask for computed styles excessively. If you need to work with a computed value, take it once, and then cache it to a local variable and work with the local copy. Revisiting the... Do the, what I <laughs> yes, but yeah. Um, so if you set, so rather than saying like element.style.left equals element.offsetleft plus 10 pixels, you can set a local variable, left equals element.offsetleft, calculate the values, and then in one operation, apply the, the new styles. Oh, sorry. Ah. Not even that. You actually can cache the style object itself, make your changes to the style object, and then move that into the element style object and that's one reflow repaint event interesting i don't think i've even made that I've, i don't think i've done that huh you get what i'm saying so every every element yes i believe i know what you're saying and so okay tyler do you know what i'm saying because i'll ask you to explain it back to me uh i think so all right what, what is it what am i saying i forgot that <laughs> <laughs> no seriously <laughs> Yeah, I forgot. To, I'd, I was uh, I was making jokes in my head about if you were Irish, your name would be Eric O'Flaint. Wow, you really 
using your CPU power for good this episode, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, um, I lost. It's just the last sentence. It was okay. really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. So the thing is, is that let's every element has style and a position, right? Yeah. And what you can do is you can cache the element's style and position, like the whole style object, element.style. You can cache that in a local variable, make your changes to that local object, and then set element.style back to this now changed local object, and that will be one reflow repaint event, rather That's than every cool. time you change a value, it repaints the screen. That makes sense. Very cool. interesting. Yes. Eric O'Flaint? <laughs> yeah. Like O'Flanery or something. O'Flaintery. Um, let's no. say like O'Flaint. O'Flaint. If you don't like it, it's going to be O'Taint. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's basically it. Reflows re, uh, and repaints are the bedrock of how JavaScript is styled or rendered on a page. And you can profile these events with JavaScript profilers. Actually, I mentioned Firebug earlier. They include a, a uh, profile tool. Uh, do you guys have other uh, JavaScript profilers? Mm, well, like eBPF and perf. Those are. Could you use those for JavaScript? Uh, you can use them on Node. On Node, because that runs on the console. But um, you can. I mean, I know that Chrome Developer Tools they have a, they have a thing that allows you to watch the repaints and reflows on the screen, and, to, and it'll show in the timeline when that happens. And then if there's a lot of them, you need to tone it down. Um, I don't yeah. use one of those. Okay. Sounds interesting, though. I might yeah. do it now. Well, I think it sounds like all of us need to write more performant JavaScript code because there's a lot of stuff I'm learning here, too. I just don't write JavaScript. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the most performant of all. It's not writing it. <laughs> that's yeah, that's you know, the no ultimate code. goal. <laughs> no, no, yeah, uh, well, uh, oh, I should have brought it up as one of my uh, GitHub issues was uh, Kelsey Hightower's no-code repo. Oh, yeah, what is <laughs> yeah. that? It is no code. Wow. It's not like those zero width uh, characters that no. you can... See, that would be no. really cool. Deploy nowhere. If you wrote, it, if you well, wrote a whole no, you programming language in Whitespace? You're using a, scratch con- a Docker scratch container, <laughs> and then you just deploy it everywhere. Wow. That'll be really performant. Yeah. Yeah. And the most secure thing possible. There you go, because <laughs> there's nothing to exploit, because there's nothing yeah. there. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a lot of JavaScript code is being rendered on the server these days. Talking about Node, um, there is, and this is becoming increasingly popular for some reason. I, I guess it's just the fact that if there is a lot of dynamic code, having it rendered on a giant server rather than your computer is typically better. If you That's can do it, people tr- are going to no, do it. It's more of a page load thing where you have like the initial page rendered on the server side and then like a, it's, it's like react can do the ser- react server can do server side render oh and then, i see and then it hydrates the the dom client side with the resultant yeah. dom server side yep that's actually yeah okay so that's what it is so and i i actually was looking into that this past week there is a react dom.hydrate method that takes the server code and i guess it's you just, a, water it's your just like transferring yeah <laughs> it's like tra- i guess it just transfers over the virtual dom and then says here you go and then react just Right into the page. Yep. Interesting. Um, Should have called it Waterboy. <laughs> <laughs> Mama say alligators are angry because they got all them teeth and no toothbrush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coach Clan. <laughs> okay. Uh, they couldn't make the movie today. 
<laughs> um, let's see. So I think, is there anything else to add about server-side rendering? I don't think so. I think it was pretty much... Yeah, pretty, pretty much, straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Uh, that, that's right next to Headless JS. There's Headless Chrome. Uh, well, that's more like a headless browser that yeah, executes your JavaScript. That's true. Never mind. Um, Created by Ichabob Node, 2012. <laughs> I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Uh, well done, Tyler. <laughs> I think we might be hitting the end, then, of our, of our little JavaScript uh, walkthrough. So, I think so. I think so. So let me... Uh, let, let me just uh, throw this at you guys. It's an article called Learning to Program is Getting Harder. And it's about... It's a, it's a, sorry, it's a blog post. I don't want to call this an article. If you're doing JavaScript. If you're doing JavaScript, every blog post is an article. Uh, no, <laughs> no, if you're doing JavaScript, it's getting harder. Uh, well, ch- check this out. Um, I've written several books, this is the author, uh, that use Python to explain examples like Bayesian statistics and digital signal processing. Along with the books, I provide code that renders or that readers can download from GitHub. In order to work with this code, readers have to know some Python, but that's not enough. They also need a computer with Python and its supporting libraries that they have to know how to download, and they have to know how to download code from GitHub, and they have to know how to run the code they downloaded. This is oh, where a lot man. of readers get into trouble. Some of them send me email. I am very sympathetic to these reactions, but sometimes their frustration is misdirected. Sometimes they blame Python, and sometimes they blame me. That's not entirely fair. So this guy suggests, I don't want to assume their gender, but this person suggests that three changes have made it incrementally harder for users to become programmers. Let me, what do you guys think about these? Number one, computer retailers stopped installing development environments by default. As a result, anyone learning to program has to start by installing on an SDE, Software Development Environment, and that's a bigger barrier than you might expect. Many users have never installed anything, don't know how to, or might not be allowed to. Installing software is easier now than it used to be, and it's still error-prone and can be frustrating. I feel this is true of, uh, like, uh, Windows. If you're on anything else, though, it's pretty easy. Can you install GCC in Userland without uh, root privileges? What? Can you install GCC without root privileges? Yeah. Oh. Not everyone wants six gigs of Xcode. Oh, Tyler, come on. It's nine gigs. Anyway, <laughs> user interfaces, and it has to re-download those nine gigs every time it updates. Uh, user interfaces shifted from the command line interfaces, CLIs, to graphical user interfaces, GUIs. GUIs are generally easier to use, but they hide information from users about what's really happening. When users don't really need to know, hiding info can be a good thing. The problem is that, G- that, that GUIs hide a lot of information programmers need to know. So when a user decides to become a programmer, they are suddenly confronted with all the information that's been hidden from them. If someone just wants to learn how to program, they shouldn't have to learn the operating system concepts first. How do you? Th- what do you think about that, Christian? Uh, I think there's a balance. It's like I've learned uh, up to a certain point, and now it's like, yeah, now you should learn the operating system concepts. Okay. Uh, no, but just starting out, you shouldn't. So you would agree with this person? Yeah, I'd agree with number two. Okay. Number three, cloud computing has taken information hiding to a new level. People using web applications often have only a vague idea of where their data is stored and what applications they can use to access it. Many users, especially on mobile devices, don't distinguish between operating systems, applications, web browsers, and web apps. When they upload and download data, they are often confused about where it's coming from and where it's going. When they install something, they are often confused about what is being installed where. So I get this guy's argument here. I don't think cloud computing is the right target for this, though. I think the internet is the right argument here, because like he's saying, like, 
he's looking at this from the perspective of like you used to be able to install a program on your computer and like if it was running like Python scripts, you'd be able to look at that code. When I was a kid, there was no mouse. Now people use the mouse everywhere. Look what it's done. I see that. I, from my perspective, I take that as like, yeah, okay, you le- you learn how to run a Rails application and do some server-side coding, but you're not going to see everything that's happening because you're not going to read that ugly Rails output. So the, the only organized way is to hop into the JavaScript console and then check the network tab, and you're not going to do that if, you don't, if you're new. Yeah. That's if you can see it. Yeah, right, the web is complicated, and they don't like to throw that at you when you start programming. No and, one gives and you like a nice the, breakdown of the different like protocols and what it's doing, and the diff- the, there's just not a lot of that. Not to mention, PHP has a nasty habit of not displaying anything when there's a fatal error, and then you're really up a creek without a paddle. Well, that's <laughs> why people don't use it anymore. Oh, that's why people don't use it anymore. I thought it was everything else. <laughs> the syntax is gross. So yeah, uh, what can we do about that? Here are a few options, uh, which he's given clever names. A, go back to programming on Commodore sixty fours like he has. Okay. Um, okay, that's practical. Actually, that Thanks. Was, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, because he actually it says that one option is to create computers like my Commodore sixty four that break down the barrier between using and developing or programming a computer, which you might as well just install. Linux, Unix. Make well, a web page he, he's the example of a that. Raspberry Pi, which yes, you do install Linux on, and like that—that that is a good example. Like Raspberry Pis, like they expose yeah, much more to you than Windows would. VM, and then you can get started. Exactly. You can do that too. Yeah. Uh, face the pain. Another option is to teach students how to set up and use a software development environment before they start programming, which is what they did when I was in high school. That's the one I, I would vote for. And number three, delay the pain. The third option is just to smoke weed and worry about it later. <laughs> oh man, great idea! Great idea, and you're a fan of that one. So it looks like, looks like we have a nice agreement. Well, uh, okay, I thought this would be more more contentious, but uh, that's good. So, I think you're we're at the end of yet another episode. No, no, Tyler, <laughs> because we've done yet another two-hour oh, show. You didn't take your medication today. I didn't take my Zenex. So, which <laughs> I've been on for almost mode, a month. Don't I seem don't I seem less anxious? No. You're still like Larry David in a 30-year-old's body. Well, that's probably not going to change. Um that's even when good. the new season of that's... Curb comes out. I really My 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 <laughs> girlfriend doesn't mind that. She she did put on Which is funny cuz we were cooking I I was cooking dinner for her last night and she put on an episode of Curb where like the smoke alarm goes off at the beginning of the episode and I'm just like why would why would you do that? <laughs> so she's sitting so she's sitting behind me and I just hear this beep beep beep. I'm like, what did I do? I just turned on the stove. She's like, no, that's coming from the iPad. And she's like, why why would you? Why why would you why would you turn on an episode of carb? Why would you? I'm trying to I'm trying to cook something. Why would you turn on an episode of carb? I can't. Where's my stuff? There we go. You're turning on my show while I'm cooking. <laughs> She brought out your Larry with Larry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Of all the, of all the other session. episodes to watch, you watch the one where he, he, he lights a smoke detector? <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. I hope you sound like that, like, authentically when you're in your 60s. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that I have to, I have to keep 50s, a very sanitized 40s. accent to do uh, broadcast media so that I don't know. 
Let's get this guy addicted to cigarettes. It's worth it. Oh, there you go. No, then, no, then I'm going to sound like Harvey Firestein, which actually is uh, is what my girlfriend said. She's she's like, that's a good accent. You should do that. Because we were watching Death to Smoochie earlier. And, uh, which oh, is, one of these accents. Exactly. It's one of these accents. And you know, it's oh, this honey. Is, oh, Ed. It's like Mrs. Big Head from Rocco's Modern Life. Oh, Rocco. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Come here. Oh, Ed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Mr. Big Head. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. It's funny because that's the same that's the same voice that I use for Christian's mom, it's just in a lower register. Oh. <laughs> uh, so anyway. On that <laughs> on that terrible disappointment, it's time to end. So uh forty nine pull requests. Forty nine. This is a good episode. I mean it's mm-hmm. a good number. We've done a lot. So Christian, do you approve of this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Tyler, how about you? I do. Well, then let's all... Oh, I forgot, of course. A wonderful studio audience. Yes! 49 times. I still don't remember. And let's all hit merge. And we'll see you next week right here on Pulverquad. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pulverquad do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at V-U-L-F-E-E-C-K dot com.